Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn them to the book of Revelation. We begin our reading today in chapter 18, the book of Revelation, chapter 18. And we'll actually cover chapter 19 today as well. I don't think that means a two-hour service necessarily, <laughs> but no promises today. We need to get right to it, though, so let me ask you to stand if we would. We're going to read a lengthy portion of Scripture today. If you need to be seated, please do so. Uh, standing is just our attempt to show honor to the Lord as we read His Word. And that's a long time, so please don't feel obligated to that. Revelation chapter 18, verse number 1. John is now being escorted by a great angel into these heavenly visions and sees this. And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power. And the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, is become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies, her, her riches. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, that you receive not of her plagues. Look at me in verse number 10. Babylon is utterly destroyed with fire in verse 8. Verse 10, is staying afar off for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that, might, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all fine and wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ornaments and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men and the fruit that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee. That is so instructive. After are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. Verse 20, a different scene entirely in heaven. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her, and a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city, Babylon, be thrown down, and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee, and no craftsman of whatsoever craft shall be, be found in thee, and the sound of the millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. The light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom, and the, and the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee, no more party, no more, no more human festivities as they have been. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived, and in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints, and all that were slain upon the earth. 
But the scene in heaven continues in chapter 19. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat upon the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye servants and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude. We're going to be part of this multitude, by the way. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters, and the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her is granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he said to me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These the true sayings of God. And John falls to, to worship him, and the angel bids him not. Verse 11, And I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. This is the king's horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And his eyes were a flame of fire, and his head on his head were many crowns, and he hath his name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. And with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of his wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name. It's written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together to the supper of the great God that you may eat of the flesh of the kings, and the flesh of the captains, and the flesh of the mighty men, and the flesh of the horses, of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and the bond, small and great. These are those slain in the, in the valley of Armageddon, which we'll talk about in a moment. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him. What a futile effort. That sat on the horse and against his army, and the beast was taken. And with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that he had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of burning, a fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Holy Father, I pray the next few moments that, Lord, you may Help us to grasp a vision, Lord, of what John saw to the degree that we humanly can with the help of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, more importantly, help us to do something with that vision, with that reality, that coming reality with the lives we live today. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. In our study of the book of Revelation or the Apocalypse, we have studied and discovered the origin of evil. 
as is embodied in the terribleness of the entity that is called Satan. His original corruption came through self-exaltation. His own beauty, his own majesty um, lifted himself up in his heart and in his pride. He said in his heart in Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse number 13, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the clouds and I will be like the Most High. And from that original delusion and from that moment of lie that never was repented of, Lucifer has spread his delusion throughout what we know as our fallen world. Lucifer has spread his delusion to humanity, being cast down out of heaven, the devil spoiled mankind, tempting them to usurp God's place, his authority, his rule and reign, and, and believing the same lie that he did, that they too could know what God would know, that they too could be like him, that God was keeping something from them. And they believed this lie. In so doing, they marginalized, mankind did, even rejecting their creator. And as a result, you know, our destiny, our end in and of ourselves, minus salvation, the grace of God, would be the lake of fire. Satan's war with God has raged throughout the millennia. In that time, he has made this world his kingdom. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the ruler of this present darkness. He is masquerading at times as an angel of light, disguising his poison as candy. At times, Satan has organized his efforts into philosophical systems, into organizations, making his lies more believable and his corruptions more efficient and institutionalized. We have talked about the role of religion. And religion is not something that comes from God. Religion is something that comes from the devil. You and I are about a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and God. It's about relationship, not religion. Religion, Hinduism, Islam, uh, Catholicism, religion blinds men's heart. It allows them to substitute uh, what they do and how they act for a heart that is, should be filled with forgiveness and grace. Religion apart from God was a mystery that Satan began, using it to lead men into blindness from generation to generation. Materialism, narcissism, humanism also were the leanings of the human heart, and Satan has taken full advantage of all of these philosophical bents of our humanity. Having caused many to err from the faith in believing and trusting in mammon more than God, Satan has done his work. And as we have learned, the pinnacle of deluded religious uh, materialism occurs during the seven-year period called the Tribulation. Seven years of yet to be a fulfilled Jewish time where God judges the planet uh, through His uh, trumpet judgments, the bold judgment, the vile judgments. And, and Satan builds his kingdom to unprecedented heights through the miracles that are worked by the false prophet. Satan leads all men to worship him through the supernatural powers working through the false prophet. He promises in this time economic prosperity. You know, the world's collapsing and 
the Antichrist, Satan through him is saying, I, I can save you. you. You get this mark. I'll take care of you. Uh, you. You will find deliverance and salvation and you'll be part of the greatest kingdom the world has ever known. And ma mankind buys that lie, hook, line, and sinker. He promises these things. But here at the end of all things, as God's long suffering is ending and grace is now substituted for wrath, the delusion and pride, the destruction of Satan comes to his cataclysmic close. As Satan himself begins to destroy the only religious establishment that he's made in chapter 17. He's built this vast empire of religion and now he burns it to the ground so that he alone stands at this epicenter of the world directing all attention to himself. Cannibalizing the very institution and its leaders that pointed humanity to himself. Leaving nothing but himself as the object of humanity's devotion. Now in chapters 18 and 19, God not through Satan having already destroyed that religion begins now to destroy his political system. The very epicenter of the outworking of Satan's evil empire. The heart of this end time empire lies in a wor one world government most likely seated um, in what was once the ancient Roman Empire. The reference the Bible uses for it is Babylon, and Babylon is a term that has been used from the Old Testament to describe this epicenter of satanic activity. Of course, the time that John wrote this book and their inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was speaking to uh, people who lived under uh, the Roman government. This was the seat of, uh, of the power of the devil at the time politically. He inspired men like Nero and Domitian to persecute the church of God, making martyrs of many. But in this moment, God is finished with it. And He decimates it decisively, quickly, and absolutely. As the Bible says, in an hour. It's just done in a moment. And our text asks us to consider God's great judgment. The last of God's judgments have fallen, the seven sealed judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, the seven bowl or vile judgments. The earth, since this fifth bowl judgment, has been shrouded in darkness. It's probably a palpable darkness, something like maybe the Egyptians felt in the day of Moses' judgments. It's shrouded in darkness, the earth is filled with smoke and pestilence, and the Antichrist is still making his promises. Yet Babylon, the city, stands. The city of Satan, a false beacon of hope in a decimated world. Again, most likely, based on the evidence in Revelation, standing in the city of Rome. The headquarters of opposition to God as it was in John's day. In the text, John hears and sees yet another vision. He sees another mighty angel, and these things have to be incredible. I don't know these are archangels, seraphim, cherubim, but these things are amazing. They are brilliant. They are sentinels, God's command. And this angel is sent uh, as a symbol in the sky who cries out, Babylon is fallen. Babylon, that great city, 
is fallen. He's referring here to the system, the economic machine, the, the system that first John refers to, you know, the system of the world, the political system, and the, and the economic franchise. Antichrist is eliminated from all this in a moment, and so too is this city, this political system. Just as Babylon and its tower were decimated in the days of Nimrod, is destroyed, so now too is this tower, the symbol of Satan, uh, this, this, this home of the hordes of, of hell that were let loose earlier from the little, uh, river Euphrates and from the abyss. This place that is the haunt of every foul bird, as the Bible says, and demonic haunt, God destroys it in a moment. And this darkness is overcome by the brilliance of this angel. In our text, there's a there's so many phrases here in a deeper study, but in verse 5, there's a phrase. Chapter 18, verse 5, and it says this, and God remembers. That's a little bit terrifying, isn't it? That's very sobering. You know, we go about life, and we do life, and we forget. And sometimes forgetting is a good thing to do. God never forgets. Now, He chooses to set our sins aside and, and praise the Lord for that. But He doesn't forget. For ages, God's saints have prayed for deliverance. That this evil empire of Satan would be overthrown. And during the tribulation, the martyrs cry out to God, God, how long until you avenge us? And I don't know that God is so much remembering all the evil as much as all the prayers. And so in this moment, the very end, the culmination of human history as we know it, God remembers. As the book of Hebrews says, it would be a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God on the wrong side of His remembrance. But God remembers the sobering thought. The holy God of heaven, the pure, good God full of love and compassion, remembers all the evil, all the sins, all the heartache, all the disease, all the delusion, all the horrors of Satan's horrible system. He remembers finding at last and answering the prayers of all the saints. In verse number 6, he rewards Babylon, the seat of Satan's empire, with double in judgment. The false god in his city that humanity thought was the ultimate of human achievement, like the Titanic in delusional thought that thought it could not be sunk, like Hitler's lies that his Reich would endure for a thousand years, this system and this city falls in a moment. Verses 7 and 8. I believe it falls the same way that God rained down fire and smoke and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. It doesn't say that specifically. It just says this, the merchants of the world, the kings of the world, see the smoke and the burning of the city rising. The same thing that happened in the book of Genesis when God judged those great cities. The 6,000 year plus reign of this worldly king and his kingdom come to an ominous and terrible conclusion. And in sadness, this is amazing to me, in sadness men weep. I think I would cry out in terror, but it says they weep, they wail, they moan. Now, hold on, just stop. What are they crying about? They're not crying at the imminent return of Christ. They're not crying uh, because of the judgment of God, that, God that's falling. They're crying because someone took their paycheck away. 
They're crying because their economic prosperity has ended. They're crying because all the luxuries and things of the world that they've built their life around has crumbled about them. They have no hope in God. They have no belief in eternity. They have not the things that you and I have as a child of God. They're crying because their toys have been taken. It's, it's sad and it's pathetic. 11, verses 11 through 19 gives this poetic attempt to describe all that men have you know, put their treasures in, gold and silver and wood, cars and homes and IRAs. Not against those things, but you get the idea. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And their heart was here, and they cried. But in heaven, there's no, there's no sorrow. And we have this, this swid, sudden swift of the camera switching, and now we see a scene in heaven. And it's rejoicing. As Babylon is cast down to the depths like a millstone thrown into the sea, heaven erupts in praise and adulation as retribution has finally come. Vengeance is mine, and I will pay, saith the Lord, and that's what has happened. And they're not just rejoicing that righteousness has come, but that evil has ended. Man, that'd make you smile, wouldn't it? In chapter 19, this course of heaven begins to, to grow and to build in a great crescendo. It's kind of like, you know, when the choir sings in one part and then another part and another part. And all of a sudden in heaven, you know, the four living creatures and what kind of sound must they be able to make? begin to sing along with the 24 elders and then the, the, the martyrs of God and the church of God and the angelic choir. And can you imagine the sound? Well, we won't have to imagine forever. We'll be there one day. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to God. His righteousness has triumphed over Satan's evil. And all these rejoice in amazing worship. It's a time of consummation of all things that are evil and the initiation of all things that are right and good. And we, the bride of Christ, this mystery of the age between the coming of Christ in the beginning and the coming of Christ in the second advent in this parousia, I'm sorry, right? the eschaton, the second coming. We, the church, we, the bride of God, who made white and clean, not by any religious efforts of our own, but by the blood of Christ, by the work on the cross, by our faith and trust in what He's done and the gift of grace. We stand ready at the portal of heaven, having already gone up in the perusia, I've already come up in the, in the rapture. We're coming back down this time with Christ, dressed in white in purity. Christ leads us. He's on a white horse. I have to buy me a white horse one day. So this is not just, the symbol here is not white like for purity, for Christ. It's white like for a king. And he allows us as priests coming with him to ride on white horses as well. He's given to us salvation, the gift of grace and atonement. And this portal of heaven is opened. And we, the bride of Christ, stand there with him, peering down over the portal of heaven onto this decimated earth, ready to descend with Christ to the earth and to claim that as our own and to rebuild it. Christ will now begin to establish His new kingdom that will in fact endure for a thousand years. And Christ descends, and we do too. But the one who comes this time, who came the first time made in the likeness of man, doesn't come. Joshua the gentle Savior. He doesn't come as the suffering servant. He doesn't come as the Christ to be crucified. He doesn't come lowly and despised. 
But He comes to this earth again as a King of kings and Lord of lords. As a mighty warrior with flames of fire and a sword in His hand. He comes as the omnipotent and ominous ruler of planet earth. His white horse is the victor's horse called faithful and true. Eyes are aflame, wearing many crowns, describing his absolute monarchy over all the earth. Beautiful and terrible and magnificent and ominous is this vision of Christ. It's so awesome is it that John falls down and he begins to worship and the angel says, not me, but him. It's, it's an amazing scene that John sees. The beauty of it all, though, is tainted. And that's not the right word. It's painted with the remembrance. In this magnificent vision of Christ on a white horse, in these crowns, and the sword, and the flame of fire, is a vesture dipped in blood. It's a reminder of the price that He paid for us to ride alongside Him on this particular day. That we, it's the price that was paid that we could go to heaven and have our sins forgiven. The Bible tells us He's called the Word of God, and we as an army follow Him. And we're not alone, we're accompanied by all the Old Testament saints. Think about it. In this entourage from heaven comes David and Elijah, Abraham and Moses, Adam and Eve, Deborah, Daniel. Those are the ones we ride alongside. And then the countless myriads of the angels of God. What a scene coming from heaven. In view that is expansive and without end, the armies of God descend from the portals of heaven. We're all singing, we're all shouting, we're giving praise and honor to Christ. Together we descend to the valley of Megiddo, where the armies of the earth have gathered together under the direction of the Antichrist in this ridiculous rebellion, believing somehow they can still stop the coming of Christ. And can you imagine the scene? All the armies of the earth gathered there, and all the hosts of heaven coming. And to say it's the battle of the valley of Armageddon is, a is deceiving. There's no battle. We don't lift a sword. We put forth no effort. We just get a ride. And the Bible says that his mouth is the sword. And he speaks a word. And it's just nothing but decimation. He just, just cuts them down. And the Bible gives some graphic description of what that scene is like. The Bible tells us in the book of Ezekiel, so expansive is this decimation that it takes seven years to pick up the mess that the vultures fail to clean up. It's, it's a horrific scene. Satan, Antichrist, the false prophet are apprehended. They are cast in the lake of fire. Along with the souls of humanity that failed to trust in Christ. It's where the parables of the sower and the seed, I'm sorry, the, 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 the tares and the wheat comes into play. Now the angels are dispatched from this army of God to gather up from humanity those who know Christ and those who do not. Those who know Him go with us and are ushered into the millennial kingdom and those who know Him not 
share in the lake of fire, awaiting their final judgment at the end of the thousand years of millennial reign. Um, I'm, I wish I had the better ability to paint the scene. It's pretty dramatic. But here's the thing. With all the authority of the Word of God, this is true. Everyone in this room will see that day. You know, I'm reading about it. You're going to see it from one perspective or the other. Well, if I die, okay, if you die in Christ and you're going to go be with Him and then you're going to return as the bride of Christ with Him on this scene. And if you die in your sins, you don't know Christ as Savior. You're going to see it from an entirely different perspective. You're either going to be a writer, or you are going to be the most regretful, sorrowful mourner that the world has ever known. One perspective or the other. Second Thessalonians describes those who do not ride with Christ as the damned. They that all might be damned who believed not in the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They are, they failed to discover the, the crux of the cross, the means of God's grace through His salvation there. First Thessalonians described the same thing. You see, it's important that we understand that we're going to be there that day, one way or the other. But I want, to, I want to make an application for us today. I have a few minutes. The, the scene's so amazing, and it's incredible, and, and you're going to be there, one way or the other, to see it. He's coming from heaven. In these two chapters, there's one verse, though, that says something really specifically to humanity. Chapter 18, verse 4. Go there and look there with me. I'm going to finish with this thought today. There's just there's this thought. And so this picture is beginning to be painted and the grand return of Christ. And you and I could just could spend the rest of our time here this morning saying, you know, amen and hallelujah and rejoice in the majesty of Christ. But there's this, this little bit of instruction. Verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sin. And most specifically, he's talking to the tribulationary saints. These are people who have not yet been martyred. These are people still alive, you know, just prior to this great scene. And God, he sends an angel and he, and he says to them, Hey, Brian, come out. Josh, come out. Do you come out? He said, You come out. These are people who have not necessarily evidently taken the mark of the beast. But there's some measure of progress that God still wants them to make other than just abstaining from evil. I think He wants them to stand for Him. You with me? They've evidently not taken the mark of the beast. These are people who belong to Him to the tribulation. They've not yet been martyred. And this economic system, this political system is churning. 
And as Luke 17 says, people are married and given in marriage and they're doing their jobs and they're going about life and they're just, they're doing what people do, even in these dark times. It'd be really easy for some just to kind of, you know, blend in. <clears throat> and maybe they're willing to struggle. Maybe they're willing to go through a measure of hardship, but there's still some distance to travel. There's still some, some ways to go to fully stand and be illuminated as salt and light in this very dark time. And he says, come out from among them. Don't participate in their system. This is the same thing that the Apostle Paul begged in his time and Peter asked in his time and John asked in his time. Love not the world or the things of the world. What manner you ought to be seeing that the world is going to be dissolved? We're called to live in light of this coming day, not just in that day, but in this day, the present day. Be not partakers of their sin. Do not set your affections on things here that are temporal, Jesus said. If I was to retile the message, it would be this. Have no treasures in Babylon. All these treasures described and what happens to them in a moment, they go up and smoke. In so much of the Christian's existence, when they stand at the Bema seat, the judgment seat, an entirely different seat than this, the seat that comes at the rapture, so much of our life is going to go up in figuratively smoke. Wood, hay, and stubble, when it could have been gold, silver, and precious stones. It's all about coming out from among them. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, hedonism. The lust of the eyes, materialism. The pride of life, humanism, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Synonymous word, Babylon. This text and so many others in the New Testament, we are told, do not lay up treasures in Babylon. We're told to come out, to invest ourselves, to give ourselves to the kingdom of God, to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, to give ourselves not just to getting by in life, but stepping out in life and to be salt and light for Him. Look at for a second, I'm almost done. This call to come out of the world It's not just, hey, come out and uh, come out away from something, but rather, Spro Jerry, why don't you come out and be a part of something? I don't just, just don't. God wants more for, for us than just you know, the security of salvation in heaven. God wants us to make an indelible mark upon the world. It's called salt and light. We live too inconsequentially. We live too passively. We'll avoid a measure of evil. I'll say this way, we'll avoid the worst of evils. And we think we've done something. But God isn't just calling us out of something, He's calling us to something. To a life in Christ. A life of making a difference, of making a contribution, winning out as a Christ, serving Him today, making a difference. 
if we could actually grasp the vision of this day, it would change the way we live. Now before this end, you and I need to live in such a way that we can be rewarded on that day. God wants more for us than the absence of a negative, but He wants the presence of positive in our lives. He wants us to live a life that honors Him and glorifies Him, that's a testimony for Him. That, that people don't have to look at us and go, okay, see, Babylon or heaven, Babylon or heaven. Riches where, which is where? Larger bank account up there, larger bank account down here. And you, and, and look, at, you look at me and say, now come on. No, I'm not coming on. We don't get it. We don't get it. No, we do. No, we don't. Uh, you know, I, I, I could be so pointed, and then it just turned into meanness. And, and that's not my intent, because I struggle the same way you do. But how much do you pay for a car? And cable. And the thousands of delicacies and luxuries. Are, are those things evil in themselves? Not unless they have your heart. Not unless, not unless you're just living for that stuff. But you have to own them or they're going to own you. And then we struggle with 10% to the Lord or a Saturday morning outreach, or pass them out of track. You know, I can just, you know, I can yell and scream and spit in the wind up here, but this call to come out is real. And it's to us. Hey, do something with your life. Do something with the time God gives you. Stop resting so inconsequentially on this world. We don't have to be big flash in the pan, the spotlight on us, but man, we can win someone to Christ. We can change the direction of a family. We can make an investment in Eastland Baptist Church. We can reach someone across the street. We can live a life of, of, of purity and holiness and testimony. People can know that where our heart lies. People can come to us when they need help and guidance and counseling. And we can, we can live in a way that we're out and we're in something else. This is not our home. This is Babylon. It's a system. It can carry us along. Not every aspect of it is evil. God set up government. There's a whole lot of things that we can participate in that are somewhat benign. It just cannot have our loyalty. It cannot have our heart. We are a kingdom of priests that belong to another. If we're going to ride on the horses down with Him, we need to live for Him right now. So God help us to think that through. Don't have too much treasure in Babylon. It's just all going to be burned. Let me ask you to stand with me if you would.